Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, last year we spent a ton of episodes talking about the way that COVID was being depicted in photography. And in the past several months, fortunately here in the U.S., it's been relatively quiet. But Mm -hmm. in the past week, I've been seeing a ton of coverage coming out of India because they're experiencing a massive outbreak, which has exceeded 400,000 cases per day and over 3,000 cases per day, although the actual count is probably much higher. We should point out that the reported numbers are still significantly lower on a per capita basis than the worst part of the U.S. pandemic last year. But seeing the photo coverage is definitely giving me a sense of deja vu and this uneasy sense of a slow-moving disaster. And the Mm -hmm. New York Times had a a piece called As COVID-19 Devastates India, Deaths Go Undercounted, photos by Atul Lok. And that opening image, you know, it's full screen, funeral pyres, you see brick foundations, and you see bodies being carried, and you see lit fires. And it's it's really kind of shocking to see that all of this is going on in another part of the the world. And Atul is a Mumbai-based photographer, no stranger to covering tragedies and a lot of things with uh, Indian floods and other uh, calamities that have hit the subcontinent. Um, what did you think of this little package? I've been seeing this fire image um, go around uh, on social quite a bit. It is a really grave reminder that, you know, this is this is not over. And I think photography plays such a huge role in reminding the masses, right, that it's that this is not over, that we we still need parts of the world still need a lot of help. We still need to be extremely careful um, because the consequences are dire. I have been heartened to see that on social media, a lot of uh, younger people that I follow in their 20s have been really aware of what's been going on in India. Um, mm-hmm. And it's set up fundraisers, and I've donated to a few. Um, so it seems like the media coverage, whether it's these photos or press coverage in general, uh, has been raising awareness of the issue. Um, I should say that there have been a number of great photo packages. We'll have the links to all of these uh, photo galleries on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Uh, for the AFP, Mani Sharma and Sanjay Kanajia have been doing great, great work. There's another photo package on BuzzFeed News uh, and another one by Alan Taylor on The Atlantic. You know, the types of photos that we're seeing, they're so similar to what we saw in the U.S. at the beginning of the pandemic last year in the spring. And I think that it's a real mistake to think that these funeral pyre images are somehow exotic compared to bodies overflowing from refrigerated trailers that we had like in New York. Mm-hmm. You know, if you rewound the clock 10 or 20 years ago, we'd say, oh, look how look how exotic and, and barbaric it is that they're burning these bodies on a pyre. But we literally had bodies piled up on each other in yeah. re- refrigeration trucks last year. It's yeah. a it's a tragedy. It absolutely is. Um, you, you also noted that in these Im- images that there are, you know, just a lot of young people um, being depicted and. Um, just a lot of grief, like public grief yeah. out in the street. Um, and, th- and that is, it makes it so pal- palpable. There was one of the earliest images out of Wuhan last year was just that body wrapped on the side of the street. We're seeing that sort of style of image repeated in India as well, 
where you know the rates of death are so high, the, in, the inability to process that number of bodies uh, leaves bodies literally on the street. Um, the, the grief images uh, for me are, you know, it, it, it really brings up a lot of emotions seeing people um, in these states of where they don't know what to do because what can you do there? You know, there's not sufficient oxygen, there's not sufficient PPE. Um, I've been also seeing a lot of uh, drone images of mass graves, which is super reminiscent of Lucas Jackson's Heart Island images from last year in New York, where, again, they ran out of space to store the bodies. And so, you know, for 100 years, Heart Island has been sort of the overflow area and a mass burial site, the largest mass burial site in, in the U.S., as far as I know. So it's also interesting to see how drones are being used to give a broader perspective of, of what's happening in some, in some ways, a more effective visualization depending on the scene. We talked a lot about NFTs or non-fungible tokens last week on the show. So if any of our listeners need you know, a crash course on what that's all about and how photographers are cashing in, definitely listen to the last episode. But um, I'm bringing it up again because... I feel like we'd be remiss without talking about the meme creators who are cashing <laughs> in on this new way uh, to sell art and not even the creators themselves, but sometimes the people simply within the meme. Um, and the latest being the woman who was coined as Disaster Girl <laughs> uh, sold the image as an NFT for $500,000. Um, her name is Zoe Roth. Um, and when she was photographed, she was a little girl. Uh, she's now a college senior in North Carolina. She's studying peace, war, and defense. Um, and she actually plans to use the proceeds from this month's uh, NFT auction to pay off student loans and donate to charity. Um, and we, we got the backstory to this meme, uh, which I really appreciated. The New York Times reported that one Saturday morning in 2005, Roth was four years old. Her family went to look at a house um, that was on fire in their neighborhood. But uh, the firefighters had like intentionally set the blaze um, as a controlled fire, fire. So it was not like an emergency situation. Her dad, who is an amateur photographer, told her to smile. And she gave that, <laughs> that grin, <laughs> that little grin and glanced to the camera as the fire burned in the background. Uh, it's a it's an iconic image, I would say. I think it's really interesting, maybe even more appropriate that the meme owners and the people depicted in the memes are the ones that are, you know, one segment that are benefiting off of NFTs, almost more so than, you know, the photographers that we talked about last year. There's something very meta about memes and NFTs and Bitcoin and all this stuff that that seems to align better than Walter Yeo selling an image for $50,000 or Ruben Wu selling an image for $50,000. Whatever the case is, I'm super thrilled that photography is, is uh, being recognized and monetized this way. Energy concerns aside, as we mentioned on the, on the show last week. And I'm just wondering where all the other great meme owners are cashing in on this stuff. I know. Uh, the article mentions that this guy, Ben Lashes, um, actually manages and represents some of the stars that are within memes, including um, Success Kid, which is the little toddler who's got his clenched fist. <laughs> One of my favorites. So good. I think that was passed around the photo shelter office maybe more than any other meme. Yeah. It was Success Kid, always. Um, David After Dentist who we all know. Uh, that's um, a or, video NFT, not just still. 
right? That's right. That's right. And then ridiculously photogenic guy. Which I actually, I, that hadn't come across my radar. I had to Google that one. That's the runner, right? He's, he's jogging and he's just like really photogenic after running six miles or something. I think so. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. But anyway, this guy, Ben, uh, manages these people and uh, his clients have, they've made over $2 million in NFT sales collectively. Incredible. Which is pretty, pretty cool. Well, the crazy thing too is, you know, David after dentist, his father who filmed that you know, from the front of the car, looking back at David, had already monetized that to the tune of several hundred thousand dollars, if I'm re- remembering correctly. Oh, because of YouTube? Yeah, because of YouTube. And, mm. you know, had basically paid for college when when the kid was like six or seven at that point. Wow. So to wow. get this double monetization because of the craze with Bitcoin and NFTs, it's, that's like, uh, it's pretty sweet. Definitely. I was perusing over at the Aperture uh, website and I came across an article called How Do Photographs Reveal a History of Asian American Erasure? Of course, the plight of Asian Americans in the United States is uh, at a near all-time high because of the violence against Asian Americans. We've covered that uh, in a, a show a few weeks ago regarding the Atlanta shootings. It's a really interesting piece because the, the centerpiece image is an old daguerreotype of a Chinese woman. And the article states, what makes this image extraordinary is that it's most likely from the 1850s California. It tells the story of Chinese immigrants who came to America during the California gold rush. And the author writes, the only other daguerreotypes of Chinese women I have encountered are the photographs of Miss Puan Yi Ku and Lum Akun, part of P.T. Barnum's living Chinese family at the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology at Harvard University. That huh. might sound familiar to you because we've talked about it before. These right. daguerreotypes were made by Lorenzo G. Chase between 1844 and 1856, which aligns with when daguerreotypes were the mechanism for capturing photographs. They were discovered over a century year later in the same attic trunk as the Zeely daguerreotypes of enslaved people of African descent. The images were presumably part of the same Louis Agassiz project that used photography to support pseudoscientific theories of race. It is shocking to me that this guy, Agassiz, was using photography in such an insidious way to prove his racist theories. Just a real piece of work, this guy. A real piece of... Shit, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a piece of. Shit. But but amazing, right? This article also references um, the work um, that was done on the transcontinental railroad by Chinese immigrants and how they were basically erased um, from that. Specifically, they are not depicted in a famous photograph that was taken um, during this ceremonial golden spike, you know, that yeah. was driven into the ground um, in Utah when when the Union Pacific and the Central Pacific Railroads met. Um, I I had not been aware of this until I was, I'm reading Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong. Um, and she talks, I mean, the first essay um, talks a lot about this incident that I just wasn't ever taught. And it was shocking (laughs) to read. (laughs) There's an interesting reenactment photo that's further down in the article. And it's basically uh, the completion of the first transcontinental railroad uh, with Chinese families. And it's taken by Corky Lee, 
who was a very, very famous photojournalist, advocate for Asian Americans who passed away a few months ago. So really cool to see uh, his image included and the work that he was done to, to advocate for the visual representation of Asian Americans. I, I always go back, you know, Hawaii wasn't a state, the 50th state until 1959, but Asians were migrating uh, in the late 1700s. The Chinese were coming over and a lot of interracial marriage into the native Hawaiian population. And then there were uh, multiple waves of immigrants who came over to work the sugarcane fields, which was the main economic engine back in the day for many, many years. And even when you look at the photographic history in Hawaii, you don't really see them represented that much. You do see royalty, Hawaiian royalty being depicted. Uh, there were a number of daguerreotypists, you know, French guys that came over with the chemistry and the cameras um, to photograph things. There's a lot of land surveys that are that are photographed. Um, but really not a ton of Asian Americans represented in the history of America visually. So it's really cool to see all of this uh, attention um, that is filling in the gaps that exist in the record. I came across a uh, food contest photography image in the BBC. And actually, I belong to a foodie group uh, for my university uh, and this, this set of images came up, and the winning image is a photo of a young family uh, preparing a meal at home in China. And it is a kind of sun-drenched room where the mom and the kid are making dumplings on the right side of the frame. And on the left side of the frame, uh, the father is looks like warming up uh, maybe some water in a wok to maybe steam the, the dumplings. And the first comment that was made was, this looks staged, which I thought was really sort of prescient because you wouldn't have gotten that comment as the first comment in a thread, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think by people that aren't in the photographic industry. So the mm -hmm. level of visual sophistication about reading a photo and understanding, is this too good to be true? You know, obviously the post-production on this, this image with the light streaming in and the color grading and the toning of the photos makes it look like it could be like a bank ad, you know, it's kind of, type yeah. of you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> typical lifestyle uh, image. Um, and there was some back and forth going on about, well, this is actually pretty representative of what you might see in China. And I know from, you know, my own Asian-ness and my own making of dumplings at my own house, you know, I don't have light streaming in this way, but it's, it's a totally plausible scenario you know, obviously they're aware of the cameras there, whether or not they were coached to be in certain positions, unclear. But I mean, what was your reaction to this photo? Yeah, it, it like you said, it definitely looks kind of like a commercial <laughs> shoot that right. wants to look editorial. Um, this photo contest is the Pink Lady Food Photographer of the Year. And the image was taken by Li Huai Fang. I think it's adorable. The child is having a blast. I would be too if I were surrounded by that many dumplings being cooked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I want to eat all that. This seems like an interesting contest. There's a lot of variants with the winners. We've got some wedding photographers um, that were documenting a couple cutting the cake. We have still life food photography. Um, we got a lot of document, more documentary style um, food still life. Like I said, it's I'm hungry. I'm hungry after looking at these. Yeah, you know, the second image that comes from Turkey by Dilek Uar, 
uh, that also, I mean, arguably looks like a lifestyle image for you know a bank as well. Yeah. I, I think there's something about the way the visual sophistication of the photographers in creating editorial or documentary style photography, where if the light is right and the interior decoration, if you will, is is correct, and the photographer's in the right position and the subjects are in the right position, you know, in this case, it's two older women uh, sitting under like a little tent. Um, and they're drying okra flowers and there's a, you know, a rooster, two roosters near the edge of the frame. It, it almost looks too good to be true, but arguably like a really great photo, documentary photo is oftentimes it looks like it's almost too good to be true. So it's hard, it's hard to discern nowadays the veracity of a given image. Um, Mm -hmm. but I did think it was a a lovely image that Li Huaifeng created for this, uh, pink lady food photographer of the year contest. We just came to the close of April, and do you know what that means on Instagram, Alan? I do not know what that means. What does it mean? <laughs> it means you do a photo dump um, on Instagram, oh. which basically means you post uh, every photo that you wanted to, just in a carousel of images, <laughs> and then you just caption it, photo dump. Um, this is a trend I am noticing on Instagram that I just feel like we need to note and mark in this point of time. Um, cause you know, Instagram, it's so highly curated. Everyone's always posting, you know, the, the best of their life. And now I'm noticing this trend where you're not posting the best. You're just posting what you want to in a massive carousel. Um, you don't care how many likes it's going to get. It's not necessarily aesthetically pleasing photos from your camera roll. It's just things that you wanted to share. <laughs> it, it's fascinating from a sociological perspective to me because when digital cameras came out in the early 21st century, um, you know, the way that I was posting photos was to my website. I had a website mm-hmm. that I hand coded in HTML. I, you know, used Photoshop. Uh, to create a small gallery of images, probably, you know, the same as a roll of film, 10 to 20 images, post them up, and then I would email the link to my friends. And then later on, services like Flickr or PhotoShelter came along, and I would start posting to these services. And then, of course, Facebook came along, and then I started posting to Facebook. And Mm -hmm. I would group these galleries or these albums by, you know, usually by an event, or a trip mm-hmm. or something, and it made logical sense. When Instagram came out and it was a sor- sort of single image approach, the first question I had was like, how are younger people trying to post like images from a birthday party if they're only posting right. one image at a time? Mm-hmm. And some people would do the whole, like, I'm going to post 10 images right in a row, which to me was totally annoying and still is uh, when people <laughs> post too much, right, on a given day. Um, right. So it is interesting to me to see that this is one flavor of, I guess, sort of catching up and saying, okay, the month is a is a discrete event, and so we're posting everything up that didn't make the the first cut. Yeah. Uh, I'm still kind of curious as to, you know, how younger people are sharing a set of images. Maybe it's just through the DMs, and maybe it's not publicly or pseudo publicly. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, no, I think they're they're doing it via via the dump, basically. <laughs> but they're still restricted <laughs> to ten images. Oh yeah, I mean yes, <laughs> because uh, because nobody wants to look at, that, at more than that within a single sitting or post. 
So I've yeah. been actually using Instagram stories as a daily photo dump. So I've been going out to shoot a lot of surf yeah. photos and I will curate and then just post them up because I don't think that they're good enough to be an individual post. You know, there's all this, this weird hierarchy in my head about how oh, yeah. photos should be presented. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I notice is I'm more likely to go through Instagram stories nowadays than I am to vertically scroll through my feed. Yes. There's something convenient about just tapping the screen versus thumbing up. And maybe it's because like my thumb gets sore, but it's so strange. No, that I have really gravitated towards stories for probably the past four months. I really have not been posting in feed. And, and I kind of, I've been thinking, why is that? Why have I been doing that? Um, one is because you, I think less about the, the actual photo that I'm going to post. I don't, I don't put as much thought into it. Yeah. Um, another thing is that if, if a picture really resonates with somebody in stories, they will DM you to be like, oh, I tried that, or oh, I really yeah, like totally, this. Totally. or And I get so much more uh, joy out of a DM from like an, an old colleague or a friend of a friend or just somebody that follows me than a like. <laughs> like it, if it, even if it's just one DM throughout the day from some rando, I'm like, cool, that made, that made impact on somebody. I, so, I also find that the ability yeah. to add music and the, the ability to add you know, those, those text overlays yeah. Lends it more to, as the name implies, effective storytelling. Um, so mm-hmm. in between all of these surf images, I've been also trying to put in information about things that are happening in my community. So, for example, there was a big sand replenishment project that, you know, unless you drive by this specific beach, you wouldn't know that it's happening. You wouldn't know the cost. You wouldn't know why it's happening from an environmental effect. Um, And to be able to use Instagram stories in that way makes me feel a little bit more uh, connected. Um, And it it makes me feel more like I have an influence over the people that are seeing the stories where I feel like if you put it in a carousel, people half the time don't even know it's a carousel. They're only looking at the first image that that comes up. Totally. Yeah, right, right. Which which the algorithm sometimes shifts around and changes. So you can't even control that. Right. So the first image is not necessarily the first image in the set. Mm -hmm. Um, So really interesting user experience uh, concern here and the way that we sort of digest a narrative and the sequencing, which is more controllable through stories than it is through an individual post. So Hey, photo dump, if it works for you, that's cool for me. Uh, I'm going to be using (laughs) that uh, Instagram story. I think same here. No photo dumps for me. But I will gladly scroll through everybody's photo dump. (laughs) I will do that. (laughs) Hey, Sarah Jacobs, did you get uh, vaccinated yet? I have. Good for you. Good for you. Me too. So we're all uh, safe here. Yes. All right. Well, we want to encourage everyone to go out and get a vaccine if you can. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, nationwide, 16 and older. You know, politics aside, it's all about reducing the spread of the disease. I think we can all get behind that. With that, we'll end the show. Hit that subscribe button. Leave us a comment or a rating. You can always tweet at us at Photoshelter. All the links we mentioned today can be found on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Photoshelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.